0: I think most people, if they're willing to be open to growth, if they are willing and open to feedback, and if they will do the hard work of changing habits, can learn to be an effective leader. That's
1: Keith Olson talking about developing physician leaders. We'll hear more from Keith later in the show. We'll also talk to David Norris about financial intelligence for physicians and Barbara Sharpless about physician recruiting and retention. That's all coming up on this physician development episode but first, a word from our sponsors. The Data Conference is an MGMA data dive user group conference that gives healthcare professionals access to the tools and hands-on learning they need to analyze, benchmark, and test their data to run a more efficient and profitable medical practice. Join us May 16th through 18th in Orlando, Florida. You can visit mgma.com datacon for more information. The physician shortage in the U.S. is expected to get worse before it gets better. The population growth is projected to be 11 percent by 2030, while half the U.S. population will be hitting 65 or older. On top of that, 33 percent of active physicians today will reach retirement age during the coming decade. Couple this coming physician shortage with the increased need for physician employment at hospitals and large health systems, along with a move rate that's reached an all-time high and it becomes imperative for practices to find ways to stay ahead of the competition when recruiting and retaining physicians. Joining us now is Barbara Sharpless. Barbara is the Director of Physician Services at BayCare Medical Group, and she's here to discuss the current state of physician recruiting and retention. Barbara, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: You're welcome. I'm glad to be here.
1: Now, you and I were talking offline earlier. We were talking about... Uh, our struggles with technology. And I just wanted to ask you, Does has technology changed uh, recruitment and, and onboarding as well?
2: Oh, most definitely. I, I mean, you know, when we recruit physicians, everything is online now. So... If you're not, if you don't have a strong online presence and even a social media presence, you're not going to get candidates. So that has significantly changed within the past, I would say, five to seven years, in physician recruitment. Whereas before, you it was mostly paper, direct mail, phone calls. It's it's very different now.
1: Right. You were talking about an online presence. what, what does that look like? Uh, what's a typical successful online presence
2: well i think it's multifaceted first of all you need to be out there um, posting your stuff on the different job boards hopefully the ones that most physicians are going to um you know we use two to three um of the bigger ones and then for specialty specific recruitment we use the association online recruitment boards um And those are, you know, much more specific if we're looking for a particular type of physician. But generally, we're out there on the major ones where the physicians are looking.
1: Okay. Now, what's going on in the market right now? I mean, I know that there's a real physician shortage. It seems to be a real issue. And I just read a study about how it's growing. And it will be even worse in the next several years and decades Does something like that, does that impact the job market? And and in general, what are you seeing in the job market right now?
2: Uh, Yes. In primary care, um, that's where we see the biggest impact of the physician shortage. Um, And, you know, interestingly enough, you know, most internal medicine physicians either go into a specialty or they end up going into hospitalist positions right now. So even though you might have the same or more physicians coming out of their residency, you're seeing a lot of them shift to other areas. So from a primary care standpoint, our focus the last few years has been on the family medicine um, specialty versus internal medicine, because you just can't get any internal medicine physicians, Um, at least not unless you're recruiting for hospitalists.
1: What are the dynamics right now? Because that's interesting that you brought that up. Uh, When you read studies and and you look at uh, what's going on in the market, you see that there are physician shortages, there's burnout. Let's talk about the dynamics of the physician's role right now what's what's going on out there
2: um well i think it stems from a lot of different things you know the just you know millennials in particular wanting more of a work-life balance they don't want to work like the physicians did 20 years ago they don't want to give up their life they want to have time with their families um so a lot of times you know and it and it's true, even if they're working half time, for example, the demands, the administrative demands that physicians face today, with the EMR, with you know a lot of other things, they could be seeing patients half time, but in reality, still working three quarter to full time. So, so if you have a physician that's got a full time schedule, for example, and they have 36 to 40 hours on their schedule waiting for patients to fill all of those slots, they end up working more than full time. And, and that's why I think you're seeing a lot of this shift, because they don't want to work more than 40 hours a week. They want to be able to say, I'm going to be leaving at five o'clock. And if they're seeing patients until 4.30, they're not leaving until six o'clock.
1: Mm-hmm. Is this exacerbating then the, the burnout for those physicians that are Working full time, overtime, filling all those slots? What's going on there?
2: That is a good question. And I don't think I have an answer to that as far as what's driving physician burnout. Um, I think the expectations are different. And I think that is driving some of the burnout because, you know, if your expectation is I'm full time, that means 40 hours a week. And if you're working 45, 50, 55 hours a week, then you're likely to feel like you're getting burned out. If your expectation was, well, I'm full-time, but full-time really means 50 hours a week on average, then if you're working 45 to 55 hours a week, you're probably not going to feel like you're getting burned out.
1: What does this do to your role when you're recruiting? Does this change how you address the recruitment process then?
2: Oh yes, and we've been challenged with this because we make it very clear the position is a full-time position. We, and we actually included in our contracts the expectation for the number of hours that have to be available on their schedule and what this really means. In some cases, we've defined these are your working hours so that it's, it's very clear to them. Um, but even when you do that, you know, we still see a lot of physicians that come in and two years later they're wanting to, you know, work less. So, you know, I, I mean, it, sometimes it happens after they've started a family, sometimes not. But, and it goes to that expectation because I think a lot of physicians coming in aren't expecting the 50 to 55 hour work week. So when that's what they're experiencing, they're, thinking is that I should be working 40 hours. So how do I get to the point where I'm only working 40 hours?
1: Right. Now, with the landscape that you've sort of uh, outlined for us, how do medical practices, how do hospitals compete? If you want to land a candidate, it looks like uh, more than ever, the physicians would have the leverage in this situation. So how do you compete?
2: very, um, difficultly. Um, you know, we, we, again, I think we've been fortunate. We live in a great area, um, in Florida. So we probably get, it's probably easier for us. Now, one of the areas that we do have as part of our health system is a rural area in the middle of the state, which is not Um, immediately close to a metropolitan area and we have big challenges trying to recruit there. Um, We're now focused on trying to bring in physicians that are under an H-1B visa because we know that they'll probably stay for at least three years or more, especially if we sponsor them through the green card process. So um, that's an advantage that we can offer to them in that rural area to try to at least keep them for, you know, 3 years. But our expectations have changed and if we if we can get somebody in that we think we can keep for 3 years frankly in any of our areas, that's what we're looking at because they do it is so easy for them to move around now because they're even though they're quote building practices, they're employed they don't have to worry about what happens to the records if they leave, what happens to the patients? That's somebody else's problem. So they're much more mobile in moving around.
1: I wanted to ask you then, because you were talking about recruiting to rural areas, studies show that that is the most difficult, as you were talking about right now, to, to get docs there to, to treat those patients. Um, what are some of the trends? What are some of the competitive advantages that a rural area can offer someone is it that perhaps that quality of life cost of living what are some of the benefits that you're putting out there for someone
2: well cost of living doesn't usually play a factor um, because it's not enough of a difference to make it reasonable yes there are some physicians who are more interested in a rural area to you know build families But to be honest, the majority of them want to be close to a metropolitan area because of better schools and all those things as they're building a family. To be honest, you know, what we do is we're more flexible in terms of, you know, the number of hours they work and the number of days. So when we have a physician that's interested in either part-time or, three-quarter time or wants to work four 10-hour days or something like that, we'll offer that at those rural locations where we won't offer it in other locations that are in a more metropolitan area. So that's one way of getting some of those candidates to go to the rural areas by offering more flexibility.
1: Do you have a real-life example of what It looks like in action when you're when you're out there recruiting and or retaining a physician. What could you walk us through a scenario that actually happened?
2: Well, yeah, similar to what I just talked about. We have two physicians we brought in right out of residency. They went to the rural area. We recruited them to. but they had families that live in the more metropolitan area and they're now starting their own families so they requested to transfer but given the ability to backfill their positions we would we could not give them that opportunity they had to stay where they're at for at least a year and interestingly enough one of them had already moved out of the rural area, um, and then, you know, then it became a commute issue for him. Um, So they're both, they've both just recently put in their notice. Um, One of them is going to a managed care organization where it's really more about managing the lives. Um, Another one, we're not quite sure where they're going, but it, it was the opportunity to work closer to where his family is. Um, that we couldn't offer him right away.
1: Okay. Now, I know that you've already mentioned that there are some, some gaps. There are still some questions to be solved as far as uh, recruitment and retainment at this point um, to meet the needs of physicians, but I'm sure you do have some strategies and best practices. What What are some of those? What advice would you give to... Uh, practices out there that I know you don't want to give away the uh, secrets to any competition, but just through your experience, what are some of the best practices out there?
2: Hmm. Um, I'm not sure there's any there's There, there really secrets because I think most of at least the people I've talked to in the industry are are doing those things. Loan assistance is a big one. If you can get them on the hook and and keep them in your organization, because you've got that, you know, annual piece that you're giving to work down their loans, that's key. Um, you know, communication always is. You know, have they established themselves in the community? Do they have a sense that they're part of that community? Um, that's you know always good too. Mentorship that's another big one. And I, I didn't bring this up earlier, but that's another challenge we have we're recruiting more residents than we ever did. They come out, they're, they're not really ready to, to run a practice, or to be in a practice, they're, they're new, they don't know how to do a lot of things. So, especially in rural areas, but we have it in other areas, um, if you don't have a physician that can help them through that first year, and be able to give some guidance and advice, then they feel like they're floundering. Um, then we have situations where they're going into their practice by themselves. That doesn't work very well. And they, we have instances where they're going into an established practice, but if that physician has bad habits, all they do is learn their bad habits. So, um, having a framework for training physicians when they first come out of school, when they first come out of training, mm-hmm. um, is something... I've seen success there. So when we put them in situations where they have a good mentor, they, that also improves retention because they become part of the community. They learn how to practice. They feel comfortable in the practice. They don't feel like they're floundering. I think that also contributes to the lack of burnout symptoms. Um, so that all works into that.
1: Well, Barbara, thanks so much for these great insights today.
2: Oh, you're welcome.
1: Have you ever been handed the financial reports of your practice and asked yourself, what am I looking at? David Norris faced this dilemma early in his career. David is a practicing cardiac anesthesiologist in Wichita, Kansas. He's also a consultant at David Norris, LLC, and he's author of the Financially Intelligent Physician, What They Didn't Teach You in Medical School. He's also a clinical assistant professor at the University of Kansas, Wichita. David, thanks for being here today.
3: Great, thank you. Pleasure to be here.
1: So you wrote your book on Financial Intelligence for Physicians. Uh, Just for our audience's sake, what do you mean by that? What is Financial Intelligence for Physicians?
3: Yeah, well, Financial Intelligence is is really an aspect of what I call business intelligence or what other folks will call business intelligence. It's just the ability to understand. how to read the financial reports and make good, solid financial decisions in your, in your business, so you know you know how to read an income statement, balance sheet, cash flow statement. You understand how to use different ratios to determine the health of your of your patient or your practice. I mean, just like we do with patients, and we, we, we know how to just determine the health of our patient by monitoring different ratios or, or metrics or numbers. We can do the same thing in business. Yeah, what I see a lot of times physicians do is they'll only look at maybe the income statement and they don't get the full picture. Um, that's like looking at one single lab study when you're trying to, you know, figure do a uh, figure out what the true diagnosis is. So I think you need to have more uh, knowledge and look at, and look at more reports or uh, metrics for you to really determine the financial health. Because once you identify where you are financially, then you can make a decision to go in the direction that you want to go. Um, you can't really make a good decision until you have a, a, a good set of data points that you can determine where you're located and then how to get where you're wanting to go. Kind of like when we do uh, diagnosis uh, and treatment uh, or therapeutics and, and medicine. We got to know where the patient is, then we develop a plan to get the patient where we want to go. Yet when we're dealing with our own business as physicians, we tend to kind of shoot from the hip sort of thing. Uh, and uh, it, it does not usually wind up with the best results. I think you can have much better results. So yeah, financial intelligence just means, you know, you understand how to, uh, where your capital is, how it's being used. You understand the timing of, of your uh, revenues coming in and your expenses, um, you, you understand, how to determine um, uh, whether or not your company is viable. And ultimately, every physician wants their practice and their company viable, that way they can continue to serve patients. Because if you don't manage it well and you go out of business, uh, then your patients will have to go somewhere else to be serviced. Uh, and if you want to service your patients and provide exemplary patient care, this is one aspect of business intelligence that you definitely need.
1: Why do physicians need to know about financial issues? I realize there's the business side of medicine, but can't they rely on business managers, CPAs, attorneys, financial advisors to handle those problems for them?
3: Well, um, I think if, if you own the business, um, I'm not saying that you need to Go off and get an mba but if you own the business um, you definitely want to have an understanding of what it is your cpa and your advisors are telling you uh you you'll have much more effective uh, and briefer uh, conversations with them Um, and uh, you'll be well if you understand the financial principles uh, you also have the ability to detect and prevent fraud Um, you'll have a better idea of who's who uh, or how they might steal from you, cheat you, and whether or not what they're saying really makes sense. It's like if I were, you know, I'm an anesthesiologist, so I'm kind of like the, the intern, the, you know, internal medicine of the OR. Um, if I didn't understand the particular surgeries that were going on, even though I don't do those surgeries, but I have to adapt and understand how to get the patient through that surgery safely so they, you know, wake up on the other side, I have to have some general fund of knowledge. It doesn't mean that I can actually do that total hip or do that craniotomy or that bypass surgery. But I under, need to understand what they're doing and how it affects me. And I think the same analogy happens in healthcare or in the running the business of healthcare. You know, if I'm GP and I'm sending you to a cardiologist, I need to know what when he sees that patient and sends that information back, I know how to how to incorporate that into my general plan for the patient as a primary care or as an anesthesiologist. same thing with business. There are experts, and yes, uh, you definitely need experts. I'm not saying do it all or you're on your own. Um, but I think it's important for you to be able to have those uh conversations, understand what they're saying, so when they do make a recommendation, you know you're able to say, yes, that makes sense or yeah have have we considered this, that or the other?
1: So you work with physicians and you experienced yourself, but what are the biggest needs? What, what, do, what does a physician need to know to make better financial decisions?
3: Well I think the biggest one is their fund of knowledge. Um, you know, they just don't know what they don't know. Most of them rely on the income statement, and, but they don't really look at the balance sheet, um, and they don't even know what a cash flow statement is. you know. Just a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, I was in Orlando talking. To a bunch of orthopedic surgeons at a conference, and um, uh, you know, one that, you know, I had a number of them come up afterwards and said, you know, I never really understood what you're talking about until what were the statements you were talking about until you actually explained them on the stage. And I was explaining that, yeah, you can have a positive net income, but you can still go broke because the money you borrow doesn't appear on your income statement. Also, the money you pay in principal doesn't appear on the income statement. You'll see those changes on the balance sheet and income and cash flow statement. And if you don't understand that those concepts yet, you borrow a lot of money, or you, you're having cash flow issues. Your AR is growing, and you're needing a line of credit to pay, you know, employees, make payroll, whatnot. You can get in quite a bit of trouble pretty quickly. So I think understanding that you, you just don't have the fund of knowledge that you probably want. You don't you don't know what you don't know. Um, and then I think the second the second gap, and it's really not a gap it's more of a a mindset you know physicians we don't some of us can be a wee bit proud sometimes and we just don't want to admit what we don't know we don't want to look stupid we don't want to look ignorant and so sometimes we don't ask questions when we're in these meetings um, or sometimes um, we just don't want to admit to ourselves that we don't know and we've hired experts and they're experts and they'll just take care of it but that's not always the way it works um a, uh, a group in my hometown, um, uh, they had a office manager who stole uh, millions and millions of dollars for them over the course of 15 to 20 years. And when I began to ask, you know, like their president, some of the other physicians in that group, like, how did that happen? You know, you didn't you see those changes on the income statement, balance sheet, cash flows? And they're like, well. Nope. We never looked at those reports all we looked at was the year-end report and that's all we cared about and this individual stole millions of dollars from them uh, and now they have to sue and now they now to me i would rather look foolish in a meeting of a co of colleagues asking an accountant what this line item means or why we're doing it this way versus the newspaper you know talking about when i filed a lawsuit against them and everybody in the whole town knows that uh, they stole from me So I think the second one is, you know, physicians getting over there a little bit of an ego and saying, I realize I don't have this fund of knowledge. I need to ask questions. And um, it's okay not to know everything, because I have yet to meet a physician who really does know everything or anybody for that matter, who knows everything. So, uh, you know, get past that little ego that will help um, a long way as well.
1: What are those key documents? What What are the key financial documents that physicians should know and be able to understand?
3: Well, the first one is going to be obvious. Well, it will be the, your, your uh, income statement, and most of the fo- folks understand what this is, right? The income statement is how much money. You know, it's a representation of the core functions of your business. So, if you're a physician, are you in a clinic, or you have a practice, or you office, or whatever. Uh, you, you're going to see how much money you build out or how much money you collected. And then you're going to see, you know, on that report, it's going to tell you where your revenue streams are. If it's a good report broken it down that way, where your revenue streams are coming from and from, whether it might be outpatient, inpatient sort of stuff, or, uh, you know, immunizations or, you know, well, baby well checks, whatever your practice is, you can make, you can outline that in line items and get a good idea of where your revenue is coming. And then you're gonna see how much it costs you to really deliver that care in the expense section. And at the bottom of that, it's gonna be your net income. So that's gonna be how much money you really had come in from the core functions of your business. And that'll give you an idea of where you are uh, financially for that quarter, that month, that year, however that report's created. The next one you need to look at is your balance sheet. Now the balance sheet uh, is a snapshot in time uh, and it just tells you where your current account balances are. And the balance sheet uh, is gonna list all your assets, everything you are owe, everything you own or everything you are owed. So your accounts receivable will go on there. And, and then I'll give you all the assets and the values of your assets. And they're also gonna show you how much you owe. You know, your liabilities, you know, and how much is left over basically is your equity or how much cash you put in. And it's based on, upon that accounting equation, assets equal liabilities plus owner's equity. Or if you're applying for a loan at a bank, it's going to be assets minus liabilities equal net worth. And that's what your banker is used. And most of the physicians, they under, once you explain it to them that way, they understand what the balance sheet represents. And then you want to watch how those numbers change over time on both the income statement and balance sheet. But I think a real important, a real important report, and one that most folks don't get but should, is the cash flow statement or statement of cash flows. And this, this actually shows you where your cash is going to and coming from over the same period of time as your cash or as your income statement. And it has three big sections. It has uh, cash from operations, cash from investing, and then cash from uh, financing. Um, and what, what you can see is it makes it really crystal clear where the cash is going to and coming from. Right. So, if you have a bunch of cash coming in from operations, you'll see it reflected there. But if if you borrowed a lot of money, and if, let's say you borrowed the headline of credit because you know payers are slowing down, or you're you're fighting you know high deductible plans, and your your AR is going up, but you still need the cash to fund your your uh, payroll, you will see in the cash flow statement the reflection of the changes on the balance sheet that the cash came in via borrowing money. Now, you can get that same information from just looking at the report, the balance sheet from time to time, but the cash flow statement makes it so stinking simple. you say, oh, cash came in, Uh, or if you, you know, cash goes out and you pay off a line of credit or whatnot. Um, That makes it incredibly easy to identify really how much cash is come into the company, out, and what's left. And hopefully that number is what's left and the company is growing a little bit rather than shrinking. So those are the big three reports I think physicians need to look at um, on a regular basis. And that'll give them a general pretty good idea of the financial state of their practice.
1: Let's take a look at that in the real world. When you've gone and consulted with physicians and practices what does a success story look like? How have you helped them make better financial decisions?
3: Yeah. Um, actually, when I was writing the book, I was working with a friend who uh, has a family practice group, right? And all he was getting was an income statement and an abbreviated balance sheet. And he really had an abbreviated income statement. So everything was lumped in together. So instead of having um, line items, that were spelled out he got an basically an abbreviated executive summary and so i asked him i, I just need a sample of somebody's balance or book reports so that i can write this book can you give me yours and then i began to quiz him about it um and i began to ask him well, what's this line item? what's that line item you know, like you know you have a lump here that just says Radiology expenses. What goes into that? You have a lump that says lab expenses. Well, what goes into that number? And he didn't know. Um, and he began to ask those questions. And then I asked him. Then we together uh, we created a, a cash flow statement for him, and he saw that uh, you know his salary uh, and the bonuses they gave out, the partners gave out the year before, pretty much was funded by. Uh, somebody buying into the group and then borrowing money on a line of credit for the rest. Um, And then you realize that, you know, we're hit, we're now we're hit with uh, cash flow issues. You know, we're having, you know, we're not necessarily delinquent on our bills, but we're getting kind of close. And, uh, you know, we're worried about making payroll all the time. And at the time, all he and his partners were really looking at were the income statement and letting the back office do those other decisions. And they just, the, those decisions that the back office was making weren't necessarily in line with the mission and values of the owners or the practice. They took the reins. They began to not necessarily, they didn't fire the person, but they, they began to say, this is, this is where the direction we want to go. These are the decisions we want to make. These, and these decisions are in line with our values. Um, and where we want to go. And over time, um, they began to correct their decisions. They began to, you know, uh, make those sort of hard financial decisions initially, uh, and eventually turned it around. And now, you know, now they're growing and and, uh, expanding. But they probably wouldn't have been able to do that had they gone, continued down that trajectory of, of uh, you know, where they were headed because of the decisions, because all they looked at was like, we have a net income, that's extra cash, we ought to do something with that, let's give it to us. Whereas they probably needed to reassess where that money needed to be spent.
1: Well, David, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for sharing these insights with us today.
3: Oh, you're more than welcome. I'm here to help and uh, help my fellow physicians become stronger leaders through business education, and I appreciate the opportunity of you guys helping me do that.
1: We'll be right back. You may know what you spend, but do you know exactly where and how you spend it? MGMA's Cost Allocation Resource uses your organizational's operational, staffing, and provider expenses along with CPT information to drill down into your service line's cost drivers. It's great for practices of all sizes and is provided in an easy-to-view Excel format. To learn more, give MGMA a call at 877-275-6462, extension 1895. Or you can email survey@mgma.com. at MGMA.com. Developing physician leadership has been a challenge for the healthcare industry. Physicians are often seen as leaders in a medical practice but many of them don't have the skills they need to succeed. Joining me now is Keith Olson. Keith is the Director of Physician Consulting Services at Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. Keith is here to discuss how to successfully develop physician leaders. Hey, Keith, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Now, leadership is central to your work, um, and I have a question on that. Are leaders born? Are they made? Is there some combination of the two? How how does that exactly work?
0: Well, certainly, based on my experience where I've spent my career, I think most people, if they're willing to be open to growth, if they are willing and open to feedback, and if they will do the hard work of changing habits, can learn to be an effective leader. I mean, someone by nature who might be, have high emotional intelligence or by nature is just a really good listener and communicator is going to travel that path at a much quicker pace. Um, I do think there's a small subset of people uh, because of their psychological makeup. Uh, it would really hinder their ability to be an effective leader. And an example of this to me would be a narcissistic personality. Uh, over a long period of time, uh, they will struggle to have people want to follow them.
1: Yeah. Now, when you think about leaders, what does a leader look like? Do you you have real life examples of people you've either you've come in contact that have mentored you or inspired you? Or have there been people from afar that you maybe didn't know personally or report to or anything like that, but you've admired and been inspired by them?
0: Well, as I tell all of my executive coaching clients, you're not a leader unless people want to follow you and to follow you they need to trust you. So leadership is not about getting people just to do their jobs. You know, we all have days where we might just say to ourselves I wish everyone would just do their job. But really leadership is inspiring people to tap into that discretionary effort, that that willingness to go above and beyond to contribute their best and getting a group of people to do that to achieve a, to, uh, a common goal. You know when i I do lots of presentations and I do uh, facilitate group meetings and a common question I'll ask people in the beginning is describe for me the best leader they've ever worked for and I hear a remarkably similar pattern almost every time I, I ask uh, that question so you ask me w- what makes a leader, let me use their answers, Uh, what makes a leader to them is someone who, uh, first and foremost, the most common thing I hear is they're a great listener, they're a really effective communicator, they have high emotional intelligence, Uh, they inspire people not only to be their best, but to grow and develop to be better versions of themselves, Uh, they create a really high trust environment in terms of not only trusting each other as team members, but trusting their leader, Um, They are engaged in uh, a vision that is compelling to them, that's a little bit of a stretch, maybe a little bit uncomfortable, but one that's achievable and, and a journey they want to be a part of. And then they... Recognize people who are doing the right things. Uh, the very common thing that I hear from people, and they are willing to have direct conversations when someone needs to change behaviors. That you know, accountability is part of being a, a great team. So they create that that uh, that atmosphere in the team. Now, specifically for me, I, actually, when I thought about uh, when I think about great leaders, uh, Pat Lagoon is our CEO here. Uh, when I started consulting with Children's Memorial in '97. Pat had just been named CEO. And the journey he's taken this organization from where it was as Children's Memorial in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago to uh, Lurie Children's Hospital spread out around the metropolitan area. And with a, a gleaming downtown 23-story hospital uh, to be one of the you know, top pediatric hospitals in the country, it, his leadership was just paramount to that. He painted a very clear vision for us. He's very approachable, high, high trust. I I frankly have never seen a CEO who's trusted as much as as Pat is. And not coincidentally, uh, the humblest CEO I know too. And
1: I've heard that before. You use that word humble. Is that really joining the the discussion here as far as a, a key word when you talk about leaders?
0: I think... For people to really trust someone and to really, to be a compelling leader that people want to go above and beyond and do their best for, they have to feel like you have their interests in mind, that you want them to succeed, you want them to grow and develop. And the more it can be about them and the less about you as a leader, the more engaged you'll find that people become. So I think humility is, is a big part of it. And, then, you know, I mentioned earlier that the one, uh, there are probably others, but the one that jumped to my mind about people who would really struggle to be leaders are narcissistic personalities because in the end, it's all about them. And because it's all about them, people don't trust them because they know when push comes to shove, um, they'll, be, they'll be last in line as, as opposed to being first in line with this leader. So I think, it, I think it's a really important ingredient.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, another phrase that you used a number, of to- a number of times has been emotional intelligence. And that's, I guess, part of what you're getting at there with narcissism or, or being or humility, some of those terms. Talk about emotional intelligence then as a leader for a minute. What, what does that look like?
0: Well, when I think about emotional intelligence and people who have high emotional intelligence, they're very aware of their own emotional state. They're aware of the culture and surroundings that they're in. They're aware of the emotional state of other people. And they're able then to moderate their response to the world uh, in a way to create an environment that people want to be engaged in and do their best. You know, an emotionally intelligent person. Can, doesn't mean they don't get triggered by things, and it doesn't mean that things don't upset them, but they've created some space between their reaction to something and their actual response out in the world. And be, being able to build that space so that when uh, they are navigating a, the day's events, that they are really one of these leaders that, you know, you frequently hear people say, they just always seem calm. They always seem the person who can settle us down. They're always the person who can handle the difficult situation. And to me, that's what emotional intelligence is all about.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm really fascinated by your idea to focus in on physician leaders. I mean, physicians in many ways are, because of their role in a hospital or a medical practice, they are the, in many ways, the de facto leader, but when and how did you get this idea to focus on the need to develop physician leaders? Was there, was there a moment in time when you, you realized there was a need, there was a lack there, or are there shifting environmental factors, the complexity of healthcare now that physicians need to be leaders? What, what re- really was the genesis of that?
0: Well, Daniel, it's probably um, a little of both, uh, an, an event that was happening for our organization in addition to just the overall healthcare environment. I mean, the the environment that this industry is operating right now is as fast-moving, unpredictable, and chaotic, frankly, uh, as you could even conceive. Um, anyone who's been around healthcare as long as I have has not seen this pace of unpredictable events and change. And so we're asking physicians to be in leadership roles during an incredibly challenging time.
1: Right. Now, in researching your uh, writings and and presentations on this topic, you've got a line in there that says, um, many physicians don't have the skills that they need to succeed. And I just wanted to ask you about that. What do you mean by that? And what are the skills that they're missing?
0: Well, I, you know, physicians are incredibly bright and hardworking, and they've had years and years of you know, extensive training. But if you think back to what I outlined, when I ask people what makes a great leader, and I talked about communication and listening skills, emotional intelligence, and building trust and all those things, very little of that. Is in any of the academic training that they've had. And they work in very fast-paced environments with a lot of pressure, and they're not spending a lot of time learning those things too on their own. So they're trying to operate in this world with you know, great training for patient care or research, um, but when, when it comes to actually engaging people in a way that they want to follow them, uh, it's something that just haven't had exposure to.
1: Now, we've been talking about the, the leadership skills, uh, physician to patient. What about physician to the team? What, what are the, where are the gaps there, and, and what have you focused on in your consulting and your coaching with uh, physicians?
0: Well, I I think making sure that people understand that everyone who's on that team, regardless of their role or experience level, is an integral part of delivering excellence. And you know how you interact with all those people. You know, I'm thinking of um, a surgeon I coached a few years ago, who would at times be difficult to work with in the operating room. And you know, I said to him, the, pe- the patients will come and go, but these people are in the room with you are there every day. And do you want them to be people who are just doing their job because they've got to do this job and they've got to be in this room with you and sometimes it's uncomfortable? Or do you want pe- them to be people who are coming in and really wanting to do their best to make this the most effective team possible? And your interactions shape that completely. And so, your ability to have people engage to the point that they want to contribute your their best is not only going to make the team more effective. It's going to be more enjoyable for you you're going to be much less frustrated and this person got much better at developing their emotional intelligence and realizing that once they they kind of turn that corner of not being reactive creating of using that space between their reaction and their response to the world and that they actually saw the engagement and the difference of a team that really is focused on excellence.
1: Mm-hmm. In your research, have you, have you reached out to the team, to practice administrators, to front office staff, to other people that are on that team to kind of get their pain points when they're dealing with the physician, some, some areas where the physician could improve?
0: Well, it, it, in other parts of our organization, we do lots of surveying of employees and physicians. And that, so that, that data is always available. I, for many of the clients I work with, uh, we might gather what I call 360 feedback, where we'll send out a quick survey to everyone to get input on what this person is doing really well, and then particularly input on if they were to do one or two things differently, what would have the most impact would make them more effective. That usually generates some pretty rich information. Um, And and then I like to help my clients become more open to feedback so that they're getting this feedback on their own in more real time, that they they share what they're working on and they get feedback on how they're doing, which I think is a particularly effective way of, you know, changing behavior. When you tell people I'm really, let me make up an example. I'm really working on not interrupting people and I'd love for you to like, if I do that, please let me know, give me feedback. Not only are you gonna get real time feedback, but just making that commitment makes it far more likely that you're gonna follow through on it. And it also tells people, notice my change. Because you know if you, if you work on not interrupting people, and then three months, you're really good at it, and three months later you interrupt someone, they're gonna think, well, there they go again, because they didn't have flagged for them that you were trying to change this. So it's a pretty effective technique.
1: All right. Well, Keith, these are wonderful insights and hoping that people who are hearing this will know that there are some great tools, strategies, processes that they can invest in to become better leaders. Uh, So thanks so much for joining us today.
0: That's been a pleasure.
1: Well, that concludes our episode on physician development. Thanks to our guests, Barbara Sharpless, David Norris, and Keith Olson. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. Every review helps new listeners find the show. If you have any questions, concerns, or ideas, please shoot us an email at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.